seated. Our scripture this afternoon comes from Psalm 51 and verses 1 through 19. It's a psalm to the choir master. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so it's a great psalm of repentance on the part of King David. And he begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May the Lord bless our reading from his holy and inerrant word this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, once again, we ask that your hand would be upon us for good and that you would feed us as your sheep out of your word today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, um, the subject that I was asked to address in a sermon was self-worth or self-esteem and the Christian. And I put it in the title that we have for this afternoon's sermon, Sin, Redemption, and self-worth. Uh, we were watching a British uh, mystery the other night, and the main criminal character in that mystery had borrowed money that he couldn't pay back from loan sharks. He then borrowed and stole more money and other things in a desperate effort to pay off the criminal money lenders who were threatening him now with a punishment for not paying back. Uh, he ended up stealing from his mother-in-law and berating her into giving him more money while she was ill. 
and his rough treatment of her caused her to have a life-threatening attack. When his wife ran to the bedside, uh, she told him to go and call an ambulance for her mother. And he refused to do so. He actually said he would, but he didn't do it. And the result was a delay that proved fatal to the mother-in-law. In order to protect himself from being accused of having any part in her death, he lied about the incident and everything associated with it. He then accused an innocent nurse of negligence, and that being the reason why his mother-in-law died, and had her suspended from her job and placed under suspicion for failing in her duties with, failing, with fa- fatal results. Excuse me. The investigation, of course, as in all mysteries like this, revealed his hand in it all, and when he finally confessed, his wife, tearfully laying a hand on his shoulder, said something to the effect, don't be too harsh in judging him. He really is a good man. Her assessment, of course, stands in stark contrast to the word of God. In Psalm 7, verse 14, we read, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. This man is sort of like the poster child for that verse. He is conceiving lies. He's he's being dishonest. He's plotting things. And the scripture says that's the wicked man, not the good man. In Proverbs chapter 6, in verses 12 through 14, The scripture says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. And here this man is responsible for the death of his mother-in-law, and he's pointing to the nurse and saying, she did it, she did it, it's her fault. She should be accused of this murder. So the question is, what brings a writer in a fictional attempt to reflect real life to say that a greedy, dishonest, thieving man, guilty of manslaughter, if not worse, who lies to his wife and to others, who conspires with other criminals to defraud, and who falsely accepts or accuses innocent people of his own crimes, is really a good person? What leads the author to try to do that in this piece of television entertainment? Well, I think the answer is, what else can she say under the circumstances? What are the alternatives? Does she really want to say that her husband, the man she loves and has been married to for years, is a lying, thieving criminal? who conspired to kill off her mother so he could get her money? Is that really what what she's going to say? And what you see in this story is a microcosm of the dilemma that all people in this world face when they look at the human race honestly. They want to believe, and they've been taught to believe, that all men and women are basically good. That's the theme. So what do you do 
with this evidence that shows that they're not basically good? How do you handle that? What do you do with somebody who obviously demonstrates that they're not good, but they're wicked? About a decade ago, Scientific American magazine uh, ran an article under this title, Scientists Probe Human Nature and Discover We Are Good After All. So they did a study and they came up to that scientific conclusion. And they even reference uh, Augustine's doctrine of original sin. But they reject it. And they reject it on the basis of the fact that they have science on their side. And the science is they got a group of people, subjects together, students and other people, and they had them play games. And because the people in the study chose to play nicely, their conclusion was, Man is basically good after all. Because they were playing these games and they had the opportunity to be cutthroat in the games and harm each other, but they didn't do it. They all played nicely in this study that we were carrying on to find out if they were really good or not. So in that study, they all did nice things to each other, so therefore man is basically good. The problem is that each one has to face at one time or another, his or her own sinful heart. Not only his or her own, but the sinful heart of others as well, which forces one either to lie and to say things like, he really is a good man, despite his sinful thought and behavior and all the evidence against him. Or as you often hear celebrity figures caught in sinner crime say, I really am a good person. This isn't me. I'm better than this. Or you have to lose all sense of self-worth and sink into despair. You either have to lie or you have to face the reality and face it with despair, I think. As David said, In Psalm 51, as we read a moment ago in verse 4, he said, Against you, when he's speaking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David believed, as John Gill says, that as soon as ever the mass of human nature was shaped and quickened, or as soon as soul and body were united together, sin was in him, and he was in sin, or becoming a sinful creature. It was obvious to him. Even in that formation, he said, I I was becoming a sinful creature. And to face that realistically can lead to despair. It certainly leads many to the denial of the reality. And this dilemma faces men and women, and they make up these things concerning it because there is a willful determination to deny the story of the fall of mankind into sin, and then to reject 
the loving redemption that's offered by God. The truth is that man and woman with him was created good. Not only good, but wise and holy as well. They were the envy of creation and had all the dignity and all the self-worth associated with being made in the image of God. In those first hours of creation, there was no higher degree of dignity that they could reach at that point than the one they were in. They were sent forth with a noble commission as a royal couple. We read about it in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them rule. Let them be a king and a queen over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. (coughs) So here's this couple raised to this distinction where they will have dominion over the whole creation. And they will carry out that dominion in the image of God. John Trapp says, man when he came first out of God's mint, shone most gloriously. If one asks, what's the character of human dignity? Or where can we see a man or a woman enjoying the blessing of a real and unhindered sense of self-worth? It's here in the garden before the fall. That's where you go to see it. Before sin entered in. Because the sad and inconvenient truth is that this couple, so filled with dignity and self-worth, ready to be handed down to their children by God's grace and covenant promise, decided to trade it all away. And in the bargain, they lost both that dignity and their self-worth, exchanging it for guilt and shame, for themselves and for all their offspring. Again, Trapp says, he was our head, and if the head plot treason, all the body is guilty. And ever since then, anyone who takes an honest and realistic look at him or herself Anyone who carefully assesses all motives, thoughts, words, and actions has to confess that if self-worth and human dignity rests in perfect sinlessness, then there's none righteous, no, not one, 
just as God has judged. Even those who consider themselves good people, even those who might look on somebody else and say, that's a good man or that's a good woman, that person knows in his, his or her own heart and conscience their sinfulness and the reality of that sinfulness. They know the thoughts that God knows, that they have conjured in their hearts, the things that no one's ever heard them say, but they've said to themselves, the things that they've done under cover of darkness and out of the eyes of others. It's all exposed. It's all known to God, and it's known to the honest heart. If one tries to face this, though, this reality that there's none righteous, no, not one, as God judges. If one tries to face that without God and without his grace, the result must be, and indeed ought to be, despair. There's nothing ahead but death and judgment. As Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Thomas Vincent says, Oh, the dread that will on that day fall upon the wicked tribes of the earth when they shall see the heaven opened above and such a glorious majesty. That is the Lord Jesus Christ coming in judgment. There'll be no tearful expressions from loved ones with a hand on the shoulder saying, Don't judge him too sharply or her too harshly. She's really a good person. He's really, there'll be none of that. There will be the exposure of all before the majesty and the righteousness of God himself. And the attempt, excuse me, I apologize. The attempts to cover up that reality by just pretending that things are different than they are, serves no one's good purpose. It works against the hearts and the minds of individuals. It puts them into a place where they do have to come face to face with their despair. And they have nowhere to turn. They do have to face who they are and what they are. If there's none righteous, no, not one, And an honest soul has to confess that. Then the judgment is going to fall on all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So to avoid the gloom and the hopelessness that sin imposes on the human soul and conscience. Men and women have tried everything. From simply ignoring the reality. To lying to themselves about their guilt. And even just proclaiming the wicked to be good, like in our opening illustration. They've even tried denying the reality of evil while going so far as to say that good is evil and evil is good. Now, rather than stooping to all this dishonest and fruitless effort to restore human dignity and self-worth, you can find a satisfying and blessed answer to this dilemma in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, it's the only place you can find an answer to this dilemma. The only way anyone is going to find any sort of self-worth or self-dignity after the fall is through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only pathway towards that result. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me with that burden of your sin. Come to me with that burden of your, your weakness and your, and your failure and your offensiveness. Come to me with that, and I will give you rest. Thomas says, Oh, you distressed souls, tried by the world, tempted by Satan, smitten by conscience, ashamed of the past, afraid of the future, whose heavens are cloudy and seem charged with storm. Listen to the invitation of Christ and accept it. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. God, in love, sent his only begotten Son into the world that men and women young and old, rich and poor, from any race, from any tribe, from any people, in any age, might be redeemed from sin and death. And not restored to their former dignity, the dignity they had before the fall, but to an even more elevated state in Christ, which one may, from which you can draw a rich and blessed sense of self-worth. A.W. Pink said, The redeemed have gained more through the last Adam, that is Jesus, than they lost through the first Adam. The pathway to this restoration begins with a confession of one's sinful and helpless estate. You have to go there first. You have to be willing to acknowledge that and come to grips with it and face the reality of it. The gospel doesn't call sinners to utter despair, but to confession and repentance under the promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the gospel doesn't say, come to grips with the reality of who you are as sinners and despair. It says, come to the grips of who, as to who you are as sinners and come to Christ for salvation, for redemption, for the forgiveness of sins, for the establishment in a state of righteousness. As we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, there are many false creeds and confessions that are popular today. They've gained acceptance in part because they call so often for a hope and trust for the human soul, not in the grace of God through Jesus Christ for sinners, but in human nobleness and dignity. But it isn't there. And they're never going to find it, looking for it, even though it's proclaimed in some creed. This is a hope that can't endure reality. Or the burden of a guilty conscience. It just can't. It's an attempt to find self-worth in something that was lost at the beginning, very beginning, when Adam fell. 
And it can't be restored by wishful thinking or cleverly crafted creeds and proclamations that won't restore that. You can run around, you can dance, you can hold convocations and say, we are good, we are noble, we are wonderful, uh, we are full of dignity, we do have self-worth. You can do that all you want, but it won't produce it in a guilty heart. It won't soothe a conscience that's dealing with the reality of sinfulness. It can only be changed. That can only be changed or only be gained, I should say, by a change in the person. And that change is something that only God can accomplish by the Holy Spirit, making his word effectual and turning the heart of stone to soft clay and bringing forth faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us this, beginning in verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God uh, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What more dignity could you want? What more could you want as a a groundwork for self-worth than to be made through Christ the righteousness of God? Paul believed this in regard to all men and women, including himself. Paul told the Galatians in chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk in this, by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Those who come in Christ, who know nothing but Christ crucified, they find mercy and peace, which gives them dignity and a sense of self-worth, not in themselves, but in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here was denying any self-worth growing out of his Judaism or his Pharisaic practices, and he confessed that it all rests in Christ and him crucified. When a person's life is defined by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, it takes on a whole new complexion. Suddenly one finds him or herself loved with an everlasting love. A love that won't let them go. A love that lifts them up to glory. 
and is not satisfied until all the promised joy of happiness and righteousness is fulfilled in them. Often that's what troubles people with their, with their sense of self-esteem and self-worth. They don't feel loved. And yet God has said herein is love that I sent my son to be the propitiation for your sins. And when you believe that and embrace that, you understand that you're under a love like nothing that you can even express thoroughly. It is a beautiful, touching, intimate spirit of love that exists between you and God. In Isaiah 62, 3, the Lord says there, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hands of your God. What more dignity do you want than that? What more self-worth than that? And Christ says, Peter, an individual becomes part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians sums it up so well. In the first chapter, in verse 11, he says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, beloved, is a real hope for finding self-worth, that God, having redeemed us through the Lord Jesus Christ, is making us worthy of our calling and fulfilling every resolve for good in us, that he may be glorified in us and we in him. We'll have to take up the second part of this later because our time is gone this afternoon. But I just want to close by referring you back to David's prayer. Because here is a man who loved God and believed in God and knew God loved him. But in the moment of his sin, he was crushed under the feeling of the load of that sin. So where did he go to restore his esteem and his dignity? To the mercy and the goodness and the love of God. And he asked him to restore him, to lift him up, to make him uh, know the joy again of his salvation. And that's where it's to be found, in the Lord. And people trying to find it outside of God will never find it because it was lost in the fall. And it can only be restored through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the self-worth and dignity that we find in our Savior. Lord, we know that we are sinners, but we are sinners saved by grace. We know that in ourselves, by that sin, we have made ourselves unlovable, and yet you have loved us. You loved us and sent your Son to die for us. We thank you, Father, for that gift. We thank you for what it restores for us. And we pray, Lord, that you might be glorified in us as we bear testimony to the fact that we're just sinners saved by grace. But in Christ, we find strength and grace for our hearts to give us joy and peace. 
Thank you, Lord, for those gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.